The reading this morning is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and you can find it on page 1165 if you have the church Bibles in front of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we start to read at verse 1. Paul's vision and his thorn. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast... I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Lord Jesus, you said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We pray that you would help us in our weakness to acknowledge it and not to cover it, to depend, therefore, on your sufficient grace, to find that your power is all we need for life and godliness. Cause us to boast in you and you alone. We ask it in your name. Amen. I'll do please be seated. If you'd like to turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Uh, we're continuing in our series uh, in that letter uh, this morning. I wonder if you've ever written a uh, curriculum vitae or CV. Uh, Most of us, I guess, are familiar with them and have had to do them over the years as we've moved around into different jobs. It's that essential document where we uh, try to distill ourselves on paper Uh, to try and attract the favour of a potential employer. Qualifications, interests, experience, skills, uh, down it all goes. 
Uh, I remember when uh, many years ago I was still at university uh, and applying for uh, various jobs, uh, I bought a book uh, specifically about how to write the perfect CV. It was really helpful. Uh, I lent it to someone and I never got it back. Uh, But I do remember the key pieces of advice. Be honest, but avoid mentioning anything negative. Be brief, but focus on interesting facts about yourself and your experience. And it's all about presentation. So you don't write, uh, I worked in a shop for six months, but something like, uh, I gained extensive experience of the retail sector by working as a highly successful sales facilitator, regularly exceeding my performance targets. Although who of us would actually write that on a CV? Uh, And I do remember, uh, painfully, uh, now in the telling of it, uh, after I got my third class degree in mathematics, uh, it went down on my CV as honours degree in mathematics. uh, And I removed the grades from my O and A levels uh, to try and make it look as if I was just being far too modest to put down the actual grades. Uh, You have to tell the truth, you see, but not necessarily the whole truth when you write a CV. Oh, do you get the idea? The CV is essentially a piece of crafted, formulaic boasting. We write that which will put us in the best light and get us noticed against the rest of the pack. Uh, We don't lie. Uh, That's not only wrong but foolish because uh, a good interview process uh, will uh, unpick these things, uh, explore gaps uh, and uncover that which has been hastily uh, uh, hidden. Uh, But we work hard at spinning the facts to our own advantage. It's an exercise in self-praise, the dictionary definition of boasting. Well, the CV may be a necessary tool of the modern workplace, but self-praise, boasting, is a spiritually destructive activity. If you've been with us over recent weeks, you'll know that uh, in these last four chapters of 2 Corinthians that we've been working through. Paul is uh, confronting false teachers in the church who are devoted to self-promotion, to self-praise. They want everyone to know just how spiritual and wonderful they are. And Paul's response, paradoxically, uh, is to engage in this sustained upside-down boasting of his own. Chapter 11, verse 30, captures uh, his intentions in these chapters. If I must boast, he says, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And nothing could be further from the advice given on how to write a winning CV than that. The world says, I will boast of the things that show my wisdom and my experience, my intelligence and my capability. I will boast of the things that show my strength. However necessary such things may be in the world, and fear not, it is possible to write an honest and godly CV. Uh, The approach in Christian things is quite the opposite. I will boast of the things that show my weakness. We believe in the gospel of grace. Our, Our standing in Christ is not achieved by merit or deserving, but given as an entirely free gift. And in the same way, our ministry for Christ, as we begin to follow him, everything we do for him is not authenticated by glorious successes that showcase our achievements. Rather, our story is that anything worthwhile, anything authentic, anything lasting has only happened because we love and serve a Lord who is endlessly patient, whose mercy is boundless, and whose grace has enabled us to do anything 
of lasting value. Indeed, to boast of your spiritual achievement as as if it had anything to do with you is to give clear evidence that you haven't understood the Christian gospel at all. As Paul has just said, quoting from the prophet Jeremiah, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's the praise of Christ, not the praise of self, that authenticates a genuine Christian profession. Well, Paul is having to engage in this because his opponents were busy boasting of their own impressive ministries. And they were doing it by comparing Paul so that he was in an unfavorable light. They've accused him of being unimpressive and a poor preacher. Chapter 10, verse 10, his speaking amounts to nothing, they said. Or by contrast, these men were flashy and trendy and smooth and sophisticated. They were just the sort of preacher that you could bring your best friend to hear just for the entertainment value. Even if the message was weak, the messenger was impressive and the experience would be mesmerizing and memorable. As Paul reaches the climax of his anti-boasting, it appears that these false teachers were not only impressive in their presentation and certainly impressive in their own eyes and wanted you to know it, but also claim that this rested upon a superior spiritual insight to the Apostle Paul. And if we think, well, this all feels like a long time ago, are we really wrestling uh, with these things here today? Well, yes, we are, because all of us have this battle going on in our own hearts. Will I get the glory, or will Jesus get the glory? Is it his grace and power, or is, is it me and my reputation and how I seek Uh, to look impressive uh, before you. It's also important in the history uh, of this church. Uh, Many years ago, over 40 years uh, ago, uh, the significance of this was played out. Some of you have been here long enough to remember that in the late 1970s, spirit-led men uh, destroyed the ministry of the then faithful vicar, Jack Wardle. They caused a split in the church. They drove him away, a broken man, Went on to found another church. Of course, they then split for it again, as such self-praising men always do. I've met a few of them over the years, and the sadness of many years of barrenness that followed for those who once praised themselves and then found there was no lasting godly fruit. How could there be if the source is here in my sinful heart? That's why, for those who don't know the story, it was uh, uh, never any question in my mind that when we built the church centre, uh, I was going to honour Jack Wardle in the biggest room in that building. Maybe after he'd gone home to be with the Lord and knew the truth of all that had happened, we were going to honour a faithful man of God amongst us here. No, this is not something uh, that is unimportant, because the challenge is there in every heart, every congregation, every generation. Will I praise myself? And so divide the church and destroy the witness of the gospel. Will I praise Jesus Christ? And so uh, open ourselves to seeing the fruit of his spirit of love and joy and peace and patience of gospel growth, of love for neighbors, of laying down our own lives for those around us. Please don't think this is unimportant. The application here is vital. So let's come into chapter 12 itself, and we'll divide it into two halves. Uh, Firstly, Paul's vision and his concern that people will think too much of him. Striking, isn't it? We are so concerned normally that people will think too little of us, that we'll be overlooked. Paul is concerned to his very core that people will think too much 
of him. And so, verse 1, I will go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Why? Well, because his opponents, the Lord's opponents, the gospel's opponents, were basing their message and claims of power on these visions and revelations that they said they had had from the Lord. And there's no doubt that Paul is uncomfortable in these verses. Against his will, he relates his own extraordinary and genuine experience of God's revelation. Great visions that caught him up to paradise itself. And he's so embarrassed at having to tell these things that he relates it in the third person. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Verse 2. Paul describes this vision at coming to a man in Christ. In other words, to him, as a Christian, not as an apostle, he refuses to use this extraordinary spiritual experience to establish some sort of control over the Corinthians. God's told me this, therefore you must do what I say. Now, that's not his way. That was the manipulative technique of the false teachers. Paul is not sure himself of the details of the vision. He doesn't know whether it was a vision in his mind or whether he was bodily transported up to heaven. He does know that this man, that he was caught up into paradise. He genuinely glimpsed heaven at the dwelling place of God. Just imagine. You don't actually have to imagine because you can look on Amazon and see what happens uh, when people claim to have such experiences today. Uh, The books are written, the television appearances follow, churches everywhere cry out for such people to come and share with them this vision, not about the cross, not about repentance, not about faith, but about glorious visions uh, that in fact distract us from the Jesus of the Gospels. For Paul, that was not an option. Were it not for the need to counter the bogus claims to visionary experience of the false apostles, we would never have known about Paul's own genuine experience of seeing heaven itself. Paul uh, writes, he heard inexpressible things. That is, things uh, so beyond our experience in this age that they are literally incommunicable to those of us who have not seen them. Not only was it impossible to speak, he was forbidden. These revelations were, quote, things that man is not permitted to tell. And so he doesn't. Paul is obedient to the Lord. He just tells us he received the vision. He doesn't go on to describe it. It's strikingly different from the message of the gospel itself. The Lord gives that to Paul and to all the apostles as a message that is entirely expressible. And it is commanded to tell it in such a way that people everywhere from every nation, every language will come to hear of Jesus, that they may trust and follow him as their savior and master. And it's to that service of that gospel, the message of Christ crucified and risen, that Paul devotes his life. You see, that message, he will do anything to communicate clearly to anybody who will listen. But this one, which might give the impression that somehow he was more favoured or perhaps could use this power over others. Now this he doesn't want to talk about at all. And so verse 5, yes, I will boast about a man like that. It is a remarkable privilege for someone to be given a glimpse of heaven, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. You see, he will not use the vision to gain credit or reputation. He only wants us to know that he's a man just like we are, full of weakness and vulnerability and failure. And therefore, by contrast, look at the Lord, whose greatness and generosity is his sufficiency. 
The vision was genuine, verse 6. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But though the vision was genuine, it should have remained private. I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Again, this is so counterintuitive, isn't it? Most of us, as I said before, will worry that people will think too little of us. We worry we'll be overlooked, that someone else will get the glory. When it was my idea and I did the work, we feel that, don't we, rising up inside us. What did they do apart from turn up at the end and get the glory? We know that feeling, don't we? That is the part of our sinful nature. We want glory for ourselves. Well, Paul here is modeling for us a mind renewed by the gospel. And so his concern is the opposite. He doesn't want people to think too much of him. He wants the Lord to get the glory. What a humbling example that is to me and to all of us. What if this character uh, was to become the dominant one in all of our hearts? What a place of mutual self-sacrifice and service this congregation would become. The Lord gaining all the glory. And so the context is set for Paul's famous thorn in the flesh. Having been granted a privileged peak into heaven, he discovers what we have so often known to be true as well. That in God's providence, amazing grace and excruciating suffering often go together in the Lord's mysterious purposes. So let's come on second to Paul's thorn and his discovery that God's grace was indeed sufficient for him. Verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited uh, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now what was Paul's thorn? Now the short answer is that no one knows. Lots of guesses have been made. One uh, commentary I consulted uh, said that over 35 different uh, suggestions had been made uh, as to what Paul's thorn could have been. Well, we don't know. What we do know is that it was substantial. That the word thorn, uh, we think of that little prick we get when we're filling the, uh, the compost bin and the thorn from the, uh, the rose uh, bush pricks through the glove in our hand and little blood, a little smarting, but quickly uh, it is gone. In fact, the word thorn here uh, uh, meant in the original language a stake upon which prisoners were impaled. It was a form of the most hideous torture uh, and execution. And we remember, too, uh, that Paul, as he's told us already in this uh, letter, was often beaten, shipwrecked, hungry, overworked, and imprisoned. And he doesn't complain here about any of those. So it must have been something worse. Imagine what that must have been, how awful it must have been, worse than being beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, any of those other things he went through. Something akin uh, to being impaled upon an executioner's torture, uh, a torturing instrument uh, for killing. It must have been something that troubled him to the very center then of his heart. That may be significant that in the Old Testament a similar phrase is used to refer to the trouble which the pagan tribes uh, gave to the Israelites, leading them into sinful idolatry. They were a thorn which the Lord allowed to trouble his people as a discipline for their disobedience. 
They tested God's people uh, to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. And the prophet Ezekiel spoke of a day when these thorns would finally be driven away. So it may be that Paul is speaking here of that spirit-led struggle against sin that he describes more fully and vividly in Romans 7. His thorn in the flesh then, the description of the normal Christian life. That the closer we walk with the Lord, the more our own conscience convicts us of that wickedness in our own hearts. Those habitual sins that we long to be free from. The purity that we yearn for the longer we dwell, gaze into the face of our perfect saviour. As we struggle to serve God, as we frequently fail, as we're always confessing, longing from the day when we will be delivered finally from this body of death. Perhaps he's speaking of that. And it's equally possible that the thorn was some sort of extremely painful or debilitating or embarrassing disease or illness. Again, there have been suggestions of everything from clinical depression to epilepsy, from eye trouble, which we know the apostle suffered from, to severe and recurrent malaria. And it's certainly a passage that we rightly turn to when serious illness afflicts us. As does the testimony of our dear sister Alison. Over the years she endured her cancer. At the context in which she created this wonderful tapestry. Many of you have seen that before as we've walked with her before she went home to be with the Lord. That tapestry that included the text from these verses about the sufficiency of God's grace when the thorn comes. A story that we heard. We know these things are true. And it's also possible for Paul that it was an emotional thorn, some terrible tragedy or loss, perhaps something deeply personal. For example, it's only a possibility, Paul's wife is never mentioned in the New Testament. It's extremely unlikely culturally that a Pharisee of his age and standing would have been unmarried. Was he widowed? Was he estranged? Was he divorced? One could continue to speculate, but I think it's good we don't know. It means that Paul is able to be an example to us as we face whatever it is that most deeply troubles us as believers. That one thing or that one relationship, that one illness, that one context, whatever it is from which we would most dearly love to be released that dominates our waking thoughts and stirs us in the midst of the night. Whatever that is, a deep struggle with a particular sin, a a mental or physical illness or condition, a grief, a soured relationship, you make your own list. The point is that just as Paul's testimony was unique, so will yours be. And that just as we don't know what his thorn is, so there will be many thorns in a church like ours. But the promise is what is here for us. Just as Paul discovered the grace and power of Jesus was sufficient for him, so we can make that same discovery ourselves. Paul tells us here that he knew that his thorn, though awful, was given by a loving God for his eventual blessing. Let me say that again because that is extraordinary. Paul knew that his thorn, awful though it was, was given to him by a loving God for his eventual blessing blessing. God gave it to him to keep him humble, he says. It's not Satan's purpose to keep us humble, because humility opens the gate 
of heaven. And so Paul sees here, uh, and the dreadful circumstance that leads him to write in this vivid way, the hand of God, keeping him humble so that he might be fit to enter into God's glory. He didn't choose it. He longed to be free from it, but he acknowledged that it came from God and God in his loving, eternal purposes. It's the same for us. Do you feel weak and helpless? Is there something you would go even so far as to say that it torments you? Well, I wonder if you can go the next step with Paul and say that in God's providence to keep me from becoming conceited, there was given me a thought in my flesh, given me that is, ultimately by God. But some of you may say, how can this be God's providential goodness when the thorn in the flesh is described as the messenger of Satan? In fact, there is no other way of dealing with either God or our present experience in life. Behind all suffering stands the one who's tempted our first parents into thinking that real satisfaction comes from disobeying God. But behind, or rather above the tempter, stands the God who is sovereign over everything, and he even turns the tempter's purposes to serve his own loving and saving purposes for his people. Rather than think about these things in the abstract, let me illustrate them from the cross at the center of our faith. Why did Jesus die? Someone asked you that question. I wonder how you answer it. Because you read the gospel accounts and it's pretty clear that Jesus dies at the hands of evil men. The scheming religious hierarchs, the Roman officials who are manipulated into actually killing Christ. And at the start of the sequence of events that leads to the cross is Satan himself. Entering into Judas Iscariot, successfully tempting him to betray his master. The cross is the work of Satan. And ask that question again, why did Jesus die? And without denying any of those truths, we know if we're Christians that the deepest purpose and the deepest reason is that Jesus died because from before the creation of the world, it was God's set purpose to bring his son to the cross of Calvary out of love for the world. And that is what makes the cross good news. For there he defeated the Satan who thought he'd won the victory. There he bore the penalty for the sins all of us have committed. There he won for us a salvation that no one else could do and that he could do in no other way. And Jesus is so clear about this. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve, but to give his life. As a ransom for many. Or again, Jesus says, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. So why does Jesus die? Because at the Father's command, Jesus chooses to give his life for us. Cross is most truly, ultimately, triumphantly the work of God, and Satan is merely an unwitting tool, an unwitting pawn in the Father's plan to bless us. Well, friends, that is the same way in which he operates today in every thorn in our flesh. Yes, it is a messenger of Satan. It is awful. It is horrendous. It has the stench of sulfur about it, whether it be cancer or sin or persecution or suffering of death. All of it is of Satan. All of it is to be hated. We rightly cry out for relief, for deliverance, for healing. And yet at the same time, 
in the same events, just as in the cross, we see more powerfully, underneath it all, the hand of God. They rejoice that he's sovereign over his world. He's given Satan a measure of freedom when we don't understand that. But he's given him only enough freedom to keep us acknowledging our weakness, to keep us depending on God's grace alone, Christ's cross alone, the Spirit's power alone. Every thorn keeps us longing for the paradise that Paul glimpsed, but that Christ opened to us. And so Paul's response to the thorn is a model for us. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's thorn was hideous. He pleaded with the Lord to take it away. And when we have a thought in our flesh, we, if we're wise, will do the same. Again and again, we'll say, Lord, will you take this awful thing away from me? Please, Lord, deliver me, rescue me. And sometimes our Heavenly Father will answer our prayer in a way that we ask it. There may be a recovery, a rescue, a breakthrough. A miracle, and we say, thank you, Father, for it. But often the answer will be the same one that Paul received, which as often as we sing it or say it is as hard for us to hear when we're suffering as it must have been for Paul when he first heard it. God does hear him. He does answer his prayer, but not in the way he wanted. He doesn't take away the thorn. It abides, but he provides instead the sufficient spiritual resources to deal with it. Again, it's the cross we're seeing. Where was God weaker than when he was in Christ, suffering and dying in humiliation and pain? And yet where was the power of God for the salvation of the world more convincingly demonstrated? This is not a lesson that God teaches without experiencing it. His own power is made perfect in weakness the paradox at the heart of the gospel. God in Christ declares from the cross itself, when I am weak, then I am strong. And when we are carrying our own cross, we can say the same. It's a paradox that every follower of Jesus needs to learn for themselves. We can hear the words, but until we've got our own thorn, we're not going to be able to put this into practice. But we will discover that God's grace and power are sufficient when it comes. Of course, we bring to the Lord our thorns in the flesh. The Lord himself asked three times for the Father to spare him from the cross. Here Paul asks three times for his own thorn to be removed, perhaps meaning on three separate occasions, perhaps three times when the thorn was especially painful, perhaps more likely three is a symbol of frequent repetition. There's no sin in asking a fourth time. For the Lord to take away our thorn, or a fifth, or a tenth, or even a hundredth. The Lord will answer our prayers as we bring them to him. The answer may well be not the one that we hoped for. It was so for Jesus and Paul, and it may well also be for us. And it is not that being given grace to cope is second best, though it may feel that way to us in the midst of the suffering. And the Lord gave Paul grace to cope with his thorn. He knew a greater closeness to the Lord than actually he would have done if he'd been delivered. Can I say this? Haven't we seen in the lives of our friends like Matthew, who went home last week, 
And that lesson not long before, that although Satan's purpose with his thorn was to destroy, yet in the midst of their suffering, the Lord drew his servants closer to him than they had ever known him before in their lives. We've seen again and again in our own family here, the grace of the Lord is sufficient, his power made perfect in weakness. Maybe that helps us to hear the therefore from Halfway through verse 9, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And Jesus met the eleven on the resurrection day. He promised peace. He showed them his hands and his side. The wounds healed, and yet eternally visible. The peace had come at great cost. It had come. There is victory. There is resurrection. There is paradise to be entered. There is deliverance from the thorn in the end. But the cost is visible even on the body of the resurrected Lord Jesus. And it is so both to show us his own great love for us, but also to prepare us for the reality that we, to some degree, and in our own unique story, will travel the same path that he did. And that as we do so, the power and grace of our faithful God will be revealed, perhaps most deeply and strongly, at those lowest points of our lives. So my prayer is that we would know the Lord's peace, even as we have the thorn in our flesh. He give us a faith that trusts his strength as we feel our weakness, his grace, as we acknowledge our failings. That is, may he give us a Christ-shaped as well as a Christ-dependent faith. For we know and reflect the Lord, whose weakness on the cross was the power of God for salvation. And so we preach that gospel in our words, but also in our lives. Let's pray together as we do. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, there may be some here today who are so conscious of a thorn in their own flesh, whatever that may be. I pray, Lord, that they would know that your grace and power are sufficient for them. And in the Lord Jesus, who was nailed to the cross out of love for them, so they have a friend, a brother, the one who has endured and been victorious, just as in him so all your children shall be. Oh, Father, please, would you keep us humble? Would you make us a people whose praise uh, is your name, not ours, whose concern is not our reputation, but rather the glory of the gospel of your Son? And, Lord, as we proclaim that, We ask that we would do so, not in triumphant human strength, but from broken lives that reflect your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.